Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we have a special treat for our listeners. We are in conversation with Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra, national leader in the faith engagement and immigrant justice for decades. Dr. Alexia is also the Dean of Central Latino and Associate Professor of Integral Mission and Global Transformation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Brandon Rencher, a minister, community organizer, teacher, and facilitator. Brandon's work falls in the intersection of decolonizing church, contemplative activism, and local presence to build beloved communities. Now, we're standing in the shadow of one of the most consequential and contentious election seasons in American history. For so many of us, it is hard to hold it all. The greatest temptation is to bury our heads in the sand and not face the world we live in. I can only imagine what it's like for our ancestors, what it was like for them. Enslaved in the antebellum South and oppressed in dictatorships in South America and in the Philippines, what can we learn from them to aid our steps and strengthen our resolve? How do we keep our eyes on freedom's road? I invited Dr. Alexia and Brandon to speak with us today because their new book, Buried Seeds, Learning from the Vibrant Resilience of Marginalized Christian Communities, offers practical wisdom to help us connect back to our own souls, to God, and even to the work again in the midst of the mayhem. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and your networks because we love, first of all, that the community is truly growing and we love the conversations that are happening around the conversations on Freedom Road. So keep it going. All right, so now let's dive in. And this is a question to both of you. What led you to write Buried Seeds? So I actually experienced the base Christian communities in, at a very critical point in my own life, that I was a young missionary in the Philippines from 1984 to 1987. And those were the years where a very broad-based, powerful movement, half nonviolent and half violent, was working to unseat the Marcos dictatorship in the name of democracy. And I got to live and walk with those people. I knew the base Christian community folks. I was in a base Christian community for a time period. It was completely life-changing. And then it also, I was also in a much less direct and immediate way, but very important also in my life was I was very involved in the first sanctuary movement for Central American refugees during the war. 
I was very involved in that movement on lots of levels. I just wasn't living in it in the same way that I was in the Philippines. And I knew people in the base Christian community movement in El Salvador. And I also knew people in East LA who were refugees who started it up there. So lots of personal experiences. And as I've worked with young people, particularly over the last 20 years, I keep saying, you know, oh, they need to drink from the roots. That there are people of color who've been building these amazing movements that completely integrate faith and social transformation. They call the base Christian community the spine, the spine of movements for justice in Latin America. And they were, there's no question. And so I just really felt, particularly in the face of white Christian nationalism, in the face of so much that would cut people off from the roots that they need to drink from. You know, I just really wanted that freedom. And of course, when Brandon's, we'll talk in a minute, but we were surprised, I think, and delighted, maybe. <laughs> There's a sober way to talk about the word delighted by how much we had in common between these two movements that we can oh, yeah. today. Absolutely. And how about you, Brandon? Yeah, first of all, I just love to hear Dr. Alexia Salvatierra share about <laughs> those experiences and just moves me deeply. I'll say that me, the Hush Harbors, the Hush Harbors, I couldn't have been a part of the Hush Harbors because they existed in the antebellum South. But mm-hmm. what I did experience in my childhood and throughout, really throughout my life, have been these spaces of community, these pockets, these zones of community and liberation and healing that were never quite in the center of congregational life mm. and barbershops. Wow. You know, on sports teams, on front porches. I grew up in the country in eastern North Carolina. I come from small, rural, black working class communities. And what you experience sitting around the table with your grandma, who doesn't really go to church anymore because, you know, my grandma is up, up in age, feeble, and it's all good. She gets her religion from experiencing the, you know, the way the wind blows on a windy day or the way that she takes care of her ailing body through the natural herbs that she grows and then tells you those, the wisdom that comes from where she inherited those, those lessons. And so, you know, even when I went, when I was in college and even in seminary, I've just always been, you know, some people call these third spaces. I I don't want to use that language because I think that it's not germane to Black communities and Brown communities. What I want to say is that they were spaces that were where the sacred and the secular really integrated and was profound for me. So what that meant was by the time I felt a, a strong urge to start a new faith community in recent years, I really didn't identify with all of the literature on church planting. It just wasn't, it wasn't really connecting with me. All the church planting networks, they just weren't connecting. It was like either you got to plan a mega, you got to really aim for a mega church or you've got to do this thing where you are missional, where you move, you move into neglected neighborhoods to sort of try to make things better. I'm like, neither of those operations feel really true to my experience of being with people at the edges. And that's when I was like, I need to look for a model that's more true to my own experience and heritage. And in the midst of that, entering the conversation with Dr. Alexia and other friends and colleagues who were asking similar questions. And that's when the Hush Harbors emerged. I studied them in undergrad, but I studied them from a historical standpoint. Albert Rabateau's book, Slave Religion, 
talking about the invisible institution was a book that I studied in my religious undergrad degree at USC Chapel Hill. But I didn't study it theologically and I didn't study it. I didn't study it for how to sort of impact my leadership. It was just permanently academic. You need to learn the history, Brandon. And I think that's how most people understand the Hush Harbors, including Black people and Black churches, is that it's something that happened that was a sort of stepping stone to starting the institutional Black churches. But I asked myself the question, could it be that the Hush Harbors might actually be church? that we can return to. And that's when in conversation mm. with Alexia about the basic ecclesia, I'm like, oh, that movement sounds very similar to what I studied with the Hunch Harbors. And it feels very similar to my own experience of wow. profound spiritual formation, connection with the divine, engagement in the world at the edges of faith communities and our institutions and our local communities. And so that's, mm. that's how so much of this got off the ground. So you're very clear about the fact that you couldn't have experienced the Hush Harbor because it happened during, you know, antebellum slavery. But have what's the closest that you've come to experiencing the Hush Harbor community in the current day? Can you tell us a story about that experience and the impact it had on you? Yeah, I can. I talk about this in the book. There's lots of experiences. The one that comes to mind, there's two, actually. I'll go with the one that I shared about in the book. I think it's in the chapter on kinship. By this point, I had already started planting the faith community that I helped to lead. It's called Good Neighbor Movement. And we had started, we we absolutely shaped that community by the principles and history of the Hush Harbors and basically of communities. And one, and so it's a network of small groups. And one of the small groups that was planted was planted by uh, it was an all-femme community at a coffee shop owned by a black woman artist in the community. And it was at the, at the, there was this situation where we had been in this coffee shop that this, let's just call them Julia, that Julia started. Okay. And she started this co- coffee shop and we, we would meet there and really kind of, it was kind of a hub for activists in our community. And so they thought, you know, that we need to have in this space a spiritual center for these activists and artists that frequent this coffee shop. And so we started a small group there. And so we were, we probably spent maybe about a year in that space, but there came a time where Julia needed to shut down the shop. And that meant that this community, we call them city villages, this city village, it needed to find a new home. And they invited, you know, again, it's a femme-centered group. So I, I wasn't going to it, right? Like I was in relationship to the folks, but like they were very clear. You can't, you can't be here. This ain't for you. And I was oh, like, wow. right, that's very Hush Harborish, right? That Hush yeah. Harbors have this kind of permeable, exclusive inclusivity, right? And so I was like, that's cool. We can still be in relationship. But they invited me to a ceremony where they were transitioning and saying goodbye and really anointing that coffee shop and the journey of Julia as she transitioned because part of the closing was a very traumatic experience for her. And one of the members got a, a kettle and, and an iron sort of small pot and asked everyone to write on a sheet of paper what they are releasing and what they are hopeful for as we leave this iteration of our shared life together. Wow. To come and burn it inside of the the kettle. And so folks were coming up and wow. putting their their, their their little sheets of paper in there and burning it in there. And I remember I was so moved by because I again I hadn't been a part of this this group. And I, I started to I started to cry. Mm. 
And immediately, you know, I'm like, I'm the pastor with the reverend in front of my name. So I tried to wipe my eyes and like tried to kind of like not show that I was getting emotional. Uh-huh. And this sister who was leading the ritual said to me, hey, Brandon, like, I know you don't come to our gatherings, but you are in solidarity with us. And, and, and here we let the tears flow. We let the tears flow. They are a part of our worship. They are a part of how we connect to one another. And I let them flow. And just the kinship in that That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. Right? Was, was profound for me, you know? And, and you know, like, again, there are ways to think about how we're socialized, especially Black men are socialized in Black religious communities where you, you don't do that kind of a thing. Yeah. But in this space of modern Hush Harbor, you let it flow. And it reminds me of Baby Suggs, right? Yes, the, I was the, just thinking where, that. Where, yeah, where she says, over yonder, they don't love your flesh. But here, love your flesh, weep, wail, dance, right? And yeah. that's what I experienced in that gathering that was led by these mainly Black femmes who mm. had cultivated such a rich and beautiful shared life together. What year was that about? It was that- about 20, like 2019. It was before the pandemic. Before the pandemic and after Michael Brown. So in that space really, and it's right in the center of that development of Black Lives Matter Mm. and Black Lives Matter, not just being a protest movement that everybody knows it as, but actually in the background and even more importantly, Mm -hmm. uh, a space, a clearing space, Black Mm -hmm. self-love. That's kind of the first or maybe more significant experience of the modern day Hush Harbor that you experienced. That's deep. Yes. That's deep. How about you, Alexia? How did you, or can you tell us a story of a base ecclesial community that you experienced that left an impact on you? What I was flashing on when you were talking earlier at the beginning, Lisa, about, you know, what our ancestors suffered in the context of what were our our modern challenges. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about a big march in the Philippines that we were in, but very close actually to winning. We didn't, of course, know that we were going to win. And of course, the win actually historically was far from complete, but it was huge anyhow. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were at the bridge, Mendiola, I just remember the bridge, Mendiola, anyhow. And they would always come out with water cannons, right? When we were having a big march. And so that's what we were expecting. And then we looked over and they had rifles. So we were like, oh, wow, this is going to be different. We were from all different faith traditions as Christians. We're all Christians, actually, I think. But there were, in that march, but there were Catholics and Protestants and Evangelicals and Pentecostals. And there was a young Catholic priest. And as we all stood there looking at the rifles, we were in the front. They put the faith leaders in the front. And we... (laughs) He just turned around to us and his face was really radiant. And he said, we're going to celebrate communion. And we did. All of In us front today. of the rifles. Yes. And, <laughs> and yes. you know, the crazy thing, Brandon and Lisa, is that they let us. That they didn't shoot until we were finished. Wait, they did shoot though. <laughs> they did shoot. And they what? didn't shoot until we were finished. But, but they held off. Until they held off until we were finished. So people were like passing. You know, I don't even know where he got the elements. I don't know if he brought them prepared or what. But there were elements and they were passing through the crowd. And 
They waited until we were done. Wow. Then they started shooting. And then they shot. And I, I remember running and slipping in the blood and everybody screaming. And it was really, you know. Wait, wait. I just want to make sure we hear that. You slipped gosh. not in the mud, blood. but in the blood. And running. And I was very young and crying and just trying to save my life. Right. And I didn't obviously didn't get shot. Can I just say at that time in my life, I was 100% unaware. But I remember watching the news report on that. on. It, the Ferdinand Marcos regime and Imelda Marcos with all her shoes yeah. and all of that. And to know, I mean, I'm like really honestly moved to tears now to know that you were there when I was watching the news reports, my God. And wow. you know, it was, you know, I think it was less than a year until the people ran over the tanks and won. Wow. A million people ran over the tanks and won. Okay, anyway, you can like, tell that story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, you know, so the statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh-huh. I mean, it was really true that the faithfulness and the, the faith that imbued every part of that movement sustained people. They mm. won. So we will come back to that on the other side of the break. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Now, Alexia, you started to say something and we had to take a brief break here. But you started to talk about that it it took a year, but after that year, a million people ran over the tanks and ended the Marcos regime. And I don't, I mean, I don't think I ever heard that story. It's called Edsa. Edsa is what people, that's a short form. That's the place that it was at, Edsa. That's how people talk about it. Young people now say to me, you were at Edsa? I was like, Wow. So can you tell me what's the... So what do base ecclesial communities have to do with that? How did base ecclesial communities prepare you for a moment when a million people ran over tanks? Yeah, there's no question that not, would not have happened without the base ecclesial communities. Okay. Uh, the base ecclesial communities shared life together, formed faith together, encouraged each other, grew in discipleship, and did that in a way that completely integrated all aspects of life. So people were trained. And that was a, I mean, I described one moment of sacrifice, but there were just so many moments of sacrifice. But people identified their sacrifice with the sacrifice of the cross. Now, there's a story that, that we recorded, that we tell in the book from El Salvador. They were talking about the cross of Christ and one woman just started crying and she said, that's my son. My son died like that. My son died for the people. And it was the first time that not only did she have a sense of peace about that, but a sense of peace that then would allow her to sustain in her commitment because it wasn't just a random, terrible violence. In some way, it had spiritual meaning. And that gave her yeah, it gave her the faith to understand that what the work that we were all doing together was the work of Christ resurrected. 
And that means that a death in the service of God and of Christ, a death in the service of Christ, the death serving the kingdom is a death that results in resurrection for not only for the individual, but also for the people. Right. Now, can I just like connect a couple of dots here that are kind of coming together in my head? And and let us see, what do you think of this? Because as you're talking, and we actually, we did touch on this a little bit when we spoke on the IG Live kitchen table conversation. But the thing that strikes me and struck me as I was reading your book is that in both cases, the base ecclesial communities and the hush harbors, it just seems like what you guys are saying is that this is like real church. Like in many ways, we have the larger quote church, right? But within the larger quote church, there's the actual church. People are actually going deep. They're actually connecting really truly with God and with each other and with the earth. And they are confronting the powers that are coming against the image of God in their communities. And I think that what's also striking to me in both cases, this is a reflection I have had since our conversation, that in both cases, you're talking about anti-democratic societies. So it's striking to me that the church, you're bringing forward a model of the church that really comes from, that, that sprung up, and it's very much like the original church, which also sprung up in this context of an authoritarian regime. So, and right in democratic government, the whole point of democracy is actually that the image of God would be able to flourish because it's all about like letting the individual's will and agency flourish and having access to flourishing. Generally speaking, that's the goal, right, of democracy. But in both of the cases that you're bringing forward, it absolutely was the opposite of that. And so, what do you think of that? Do you think that do you think that basically zeal communities? And hush harbors can exist in a democracy? Hush harbors were the democratic imagination of the colonial period in this. And I mean, I think period, really, we still experience colonization in this country. But in, historically, if we, sort of, if we want to sort of demarcate the sort of periods, it was a witness. It was a model of democratic imagination at that time. We talk about that in the book, in the chapter on leader full. We talk about that in terms of kinship. And especially if what we what we mean by democratic is what you just alluded to, that the image of God in people is set free. And not in a way that is individualistic, but in a way that we grapple together as community to see each person experience their full potential. And and to and to really resist anything that gets in the way of that. I mean, that's what you have. I mean, you don't have, you don't have an abolitionist movement without the hush harbors. That's where, exactly where, right. If you read Frederick Douglass's comments about when he talks about the Christianity of Christ versus the Christianity of this land, when you hear the stories about Harriet Tubman, the kind of faith that she was nurtured in, when you, when you look at Nat Turner and Demar Vesey, they did not learn that type of faith in the plantation church, whether it was the white church or the multiracial church, because there was no white religious leader that would have allowed them to talk like that. Where did they learn that? We don't have direct evidence, but we can deduce that you didn't learn that in the, on the plantation. You learned that off in the woods. That was the hush harbor. Where That's we so were deep. 
you know? So So what you're saying, what you're, well, this is what's so striking to me is that it doesn't really matter what the government itself says it is, whether it says it's democratic, as America said, even back then, right? Like, I mean, that's what the whole point of the Constitution was, right? To start to create this democratic republic, but it was in the middle of a slaveocracy. So it Uh wasn't really real democracy. And even after that, with the passage of 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, for the next 90 years, they had Jim Crow. So even then it wasn't a true democracy, right? That's right. So, but the Hush Harbor was like the Acts 2 church in the middle of Rome, where it was not a democracy that they were living in. It was very much an autocracy, or at the very least, not for all of the people. It was like a colonized situation. But in that Acts 2 church, it was the space where they got to practice True democracy. I love that. Yeah. I love and that. We talk about that in our in our leaderful chapter, right? Right. Oh. They were so committed to this vision of the body of Christ with every part being fully alive, fully right. operating, fully able to come, you know, that they were really, they didn't just give lip service to the full empowerment and participation of every person. Mm-hmm. They practiced it weekly. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Alexia, I, I would want to say that there's no such thing as complete democracy on earth. There's no such thing as a perfect democracy, mm-hmm. you know. And but I, I think about the phrase in Vatican II that started the base Christian community movement, which was they redefined church. Mm-hmm. They said that church was meant to be the alma y fermenta de la comunidad in Gaudium et Spes, and that's the the soul and yeast of the community. That's what the role of the church is, to be the soul and yeast of the community. And so this understanding that God was, that the kingdom is not completely full. The kingdom is growing. The kingdom is present and growing. And that the church helps that in the community, apart from the community, Mm -hmm. in the community as the soul and yeast helps the community grow towards this more more perfect union, more complete democracy. Yeah. that is God's vision. Like you talk about the image of God and I think about the abundant life and I think about the visions of communal abundant life, like in Isaiah 65, mm-hmm. that God has this dream for us that we're moving towards, even though we will, I believe we won't get there perfectly until Jesus comes back. But I believe that we're in process. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's happening, that there is foretaste of the feast to come. And so that's what we don't have. It's not like everything's done because we have a democracy. That's right. That's for real. <laughs> that's right. I do. I want to ask this. If you could, I do want us to get into kind of what are the core concepts, like the foundational concepts of the base ecclesial communities and then also the Hush Harbor. So let's start with the base ecclesial communities. And I also hear you calling them base church communities. Yeah, there's, to, there's three yeah. different, you know, in Spanish, they're comunidades de base which just means base community. But mm-hmm. then their official title is base ecclesial community. Mm-hmm. And then they're often referred to in English as base Christian communities. Okay. So we're talking <laughs> about them as BCCs, BECs, CBBs, you know, but <laughs> knows what they are. They don't care what they call them. <laughs> they're like these big communities. Yeah. Okay. Or even small well, I think we talk about, in the book, we talk about this in two different ways, right? We talk about the principles that we have in common, mm-hmm. right? That kinship, leaderful. We're going to get to that. You know, we'll get to but that. But then in Gaudium at Spies, there were some clear things that they said. 
that really were at the core of it. And one of them is the preferential option for the poor, mm-hmm. which is this understanding. And for me, it goes back to First Corinthians 12, mm-hmm. when they talk about the body of Christ, there's this lovely sentence in First Corinthians 12, right? Which is verses 24 and 20. It's just been talking about how every part of the body is essential, right? And precious and needed. And then it says, give more honor to the parts that have lacked it. I love that, that. That's God's affirmative action policy, right? That you have. You to, were the first person to show me that. I never heard of that scripture no, before no, you showed it to me. It. So what? Something that you have to intentionally center the marginalized. And what I love is what comes after that. It says so that there will be no division in the body, but all the parts will care equally for each other. Like mm. you don't get to the equal care for each other actually until you center the parts that have been on the margins. And so the preferential option for the poor just recognizes that we're all needed for the beloved community. We're all needed, but the only way you get to the full recognition of the need of the reality that we're all needed is if you put forward the people who have been most left behind. And that way, everybody fits into the whole in a way that works. That's the preferential option for the poor. That instead of seeing the poor as the recipients, mm-hmm. the poor are the agents, the poor and marginalized are the agents of God's kingdom's growth in the world. Wow, that's a shift. Yeah. That's a really deep shift because then you don't actually think of mission as what we were talking about earlier with the church planting, the church planting norm is to go into a poor community in order to help it. You actually you unite in solidarity with the poor in order to be yes. closer to the mission of God. That's exactly right, Lisa. That's exactly right. And I think that also verse 13 too, and it says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because by doing so, you welcome angels, right? Angel just means messenger in Greek, messengers of God. So yeah. it's this recognition that the poor and marginalized are messengers of God to people who are less poor or less marginalized, maybe not in every instance, but in the deepest sense. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it shifts everything. It changes everything. And you're right. Solidarity was one of the key words. Solidaridad was one of the key, always one of the key words of the, the, the BECs or the basic. Well, you actually talked about becoming the soul and leaven of the society. Yeah. Building so- the family of God. That was another mm-hmm. one. And, but you start with the preferential option of- Yeah, because that's where it starts. That's core. That is core. And, you know, I was, I just, this is a little soapbox, but, you know, we know that sometimes conservative people blame the poor and marginalized for any aspect of their poverty, any aspect of their marginalization. And we know that. And we know Mm. that that's not what the word says. But what we often don't realize is sometimes very liberal, progressive people in subtle ways do exactly the same thing. And I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and wow. how that was taught to me when I was in college. Is, this is just true. This is just the way things are, that people have to have a certain level of security and financial security before mm-hmm. they can be altruistic or before they can be philosophical, even before they can fight for a higher cause. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just simply not true. That's what and, is not and true. the base Christian communities, these were the poorest of the poor mm. leading these communities, running these communities. You know, they rotated the role in many communities of the animador, animador, the inspirer, was rotated. And the coordinating role was rotated. And people were trained so that they could take those roles. So that they were very clear that sometimes communities started with a pastoral agent that was not 
was voluntarily poor, like a priest or a nun. But if they didn't, if they didn't shift over full leadership to the people, they didn't, they died. But they only survived as communities when the actual people ran them. And they did, you know, not one community, not two communities, but a whole movement throughout the continent of America, Latin America, America. Wow. And so it's like nobody can say. And for me, one of the things I really, one of the things Brad and I did in the book is we talked to people in different social contexts. So we talked to people who are the Lydia's. We talked to people who have power and privilege. Then we talked to people that are the Ruth's. And those are people who are in between or foot in each world. And then we talked to people who are the Amos, who are the people who are poor and marginalized. And one of the things that I just weeped every time, wept, I mean, my own experience and then in re- going back and reading the story that I'd be crying is that just to say to people, society says that you can't do it. Mm. Society says that you're not worthy and you're not able on your own. The word of God says something different. And mm. that was the experience of the people in the base Christian community movement is that God, that the world said that they weren't anyone and that God said that they were the agents of the kingdom and mm. that they lived it. They lived into the word that was spoken. Wow. Brandon, can you tell us about the Hush Harbors and the plantation? And in particular, the parallels that you might see to the terror then and the terror today? Yeah. Oh, gosh, the plantation. I mean, the plantation was a site of constant surveillance, a site of constant mangling the potential of Black folks and their allies, frankly, let me just say that. And the Hush Harbors were a site, a space, a gathering outside of the gaze of the plantation, both the plantation economy and the plantation church, where enslaved Africans could be wild, where they could be set free, right? And, you know, in terms of some of the concepts or principles of the Hush Harbors, you know, in another book that I wrote with, the, with some colleagues called the, the Liberating Church, we talk about eight marks of hush harbors. And I outline them in this book as a way to help people understand the, the historical hush harbor before we go into talking about the relationship between hush harbors and base ecclesial communities and temporary ways that we might contextualize hush harbors. And I won't go through all of them because it's, you know, I'll just say a few of them. One of them is still away. Still away is this idea that in order to live into what it means to be hush harbor, you have to break rank. Mm. You have to commit (gasps) treason, treason, right? To the way things are, the status quo, both in the church and in the world. And that's what they did, right? The, The world said, or the government, the economy said that they weren't capable. And you see the resonance already with the basic basic communities. They weren't capable because they were slaves. Yeah, that's right. To lead anything or to do anything. Most of them were illiterate, whatever that, you know, in terms of, you know, and, and even that has a, such a politicized understanding, right? Totally. You know, and, and now and back then, what it meant to be what, what the, the government or the status quo, the institution meant by being illiterate is that you couldn't get around, you couldn't make meaning out of the world. But what they didn't know is that enslaved Africans had a whole system of meaning making that they brought with them, right? Yes. So still away was this idea of breaking rank. And the main way they b- would break rank is that they would say, I know it's illegal for us to gather. And I know it's illegal 
for us to leave the plantation, but they did it anyway. Wait, can I just say, you can't just bring up Steal Away without actually singing Steal Away, right? (laughs) I mean, because Steal Away is an actual song, right? And like, so it's like the concept of Steal Away, because Steal Away was one of those things that they would sing Mm-hmm. As when they knew, just like Wade in the Water, when they knew somebody was about to break rank and run, right. they were going right. to, they were literally going to escape the plantation. They That's were going right. to get free. That's and right. So they would sing. I can't sing, away. y'all, but I can tell you, that. yeah, sing it. Go ahead. Steal away, steal away to, now I know I'm going to ruin it. Ah, this is steal away. No, I know I it's steal away to Jesus, but. That's right. I want to make sure I'm singing it right. So anyway. We'll have to put that into. We can put the, the song in the in the in the you know the notes, but a yes, note, that, or it, a link to it. Yeah, okay. still away, still away to Jesus, and then it goes on to say, "I ain't got long to stay here." And of course, they would sing this on the plantation while they were working. What the slavers thought that meant was, "Oh, we tricked them with that Christian religion, and they are satisfied with their plight in life, and they're waiting for heaven." What they didn't know, again, the brilliance, the genius of these enslaved Africans, that they were singing this as a way to signal to one another. If you have the courage, which you can get if you believe, you can actually come join us tonight when we gather down by the riverside, away from that surveillance and that control, where we're going to love on each other and love ourselves and plot for getting away from this. And so Still Away was one of them. And I'll share one more. And I actually think that the piece, yeah, I, wanna, I think I want to talk about talking book. Talking book is this idea that the way enslaved Africans understood scripture was a very dynamic relationship. And this, Alexi, you got to say something about, about the basic collegiate community's relationship to scripture. Well, you know, so many people understand scripture in a very flat, a very rigid sort of way, a set of rules a way to control or oppress people. And I, and I have some empathy for folks who understand the scripture in that way, because that's the way it's been used. But we might take notes from folks who, you know, not to compare oppression, but to just acknowledge that the oppression that our ancestors faced is categorically different than what most of us experience today in these yet to be United States. And they use scripture and saw and felt and experienced scripture in a more dynamic way, right? They understood spirit to be speaking through the words, right? Mm -hmm. Setting them free to live fully as human beings because that's what Mm -hmm. God intended. And so, you know, they would, for example, take the story of, you know, connect the story of the Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. To Mary's song when she's in the New Testament, where she is weeping over, right? Mary, don't you um, weep. Yeah, exactly. Mary, yeah. don't you weep was one of those songs, right? Wow. And they, try, they, they are dancing and play, being playful with the real prophetic and freedom possibilities of scripture. And, yeah. and, and really sort of, shutting out the ways in which the slave preachers used the scripture in a way that domesticated the gospel and tried to control them. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast.
So go on with that thought you were talking about, because honestly, that's, it's a really, it's a deep and profound thought that you're bringing forward, that it was actually in the process, the actual process of coming together and the language that the process of communicating meaning in a subversive way was actually part of, and I mean, this is me putting stuff together, part of that democratizing process, part of that process of, of blowing life into the image of God Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the plantation. On the plantation. I mean, I, wow. I'd like to read a little bit from the book, if that's okay. Just uh, yes, on this please. Piece, uh, yes. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you weep more. So I'm going to read this piece. It's on page 38 in the book. And it says, the spiritual, oh, Mary, don't you weep. Here's the lyrics. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. And then I go on to say, enslaved Africans created a link between the resurrection story and the Exodus story. In the, res- in the resurrection story, Mary of Bethany wept believing she had lost Jesus and his movement to the oppressive Roman state. She discovered that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and she was one of the first people Jesus charged with delivering the good news that Jesus and his movement were not dead, but would live on through his people. In the Exodus story, Moses gained power from God to part a sea, allowing the Hebrew people he was leading to escape from their oppressors. The sea collapsed on and drowned Pharaoh and his army as they chased the Hebrew people. Then I go on to say this, in step with their radical interpretation of the biblical stories, enslaved Africans in the hush harbors would weave their own conditions into the biblical story through song. And so that's an example, right, of like how they felt the freedom to really be in relationship with the scripture. Say very quickly here, because this is not the case everywhere. I mean, the fact that people of African descent on American plantations had these kind of songs. I mean, the, the songs, the subversive, the subversive language and, and communication of meaning actually was, it was something that happened pretty much everywhere. It happened on an enslavement in South America. I know that people told me about that kind of communication of meaning on the plantations in Brazil. I imagine that is actually more of a universal thing, but what didn't happen is the civil rights movement. You know, like that did not happen in Brazil. They never had a civil rights movement. They never necessarily had that. And so, I mean, I just, I wonder how, is there a connection between the subversive nature of the meaning and the communication and the faith itself that is found in the Hush Harbor and the subversive nature of the movement for Black freedom in the South that rose (laughs) up? I mean, what's that connection? It's absolutely a connection. I mean, you see, you see the Black freedom movement doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. They are saying, okay, there was something about singing that both sets us free Mm -hmm. in terms of our consciousness and bodies to be able to have the courage we need to fight, but also a form of communication so that when we, wherever we are, when we are away from the surveillance of the state, or if we are right in front of their faces, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can sing in a way that encourages our spirits and sends signal to our people to fight on, right? Wait, so, you yeah. are, wait, I just gotta say, in South Africa, they had the same thing. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. my friend Siki Tlanga from Cape Town, Eastern Cape, she says that they had the toy toy, you know, and they would sing their tribal songs as they were in the middle of the street marching in the middle of the South African anti-apartheid movement. And they would be singing or even chanting 
Mandla, Mandla. And the white folk had no idea what they were saying. They had no idea, but they knew the language. They knew they were able to communicate in the same way. That's so deep. I'm wondering, because I want to bring Alexia back into this. Alexia, what for you, what do you see as the seeds of the base church communities and maybe the Cesar Chavez movement here in the U.S. or the sanctuary movement here in the U.S. that that grew up in the 80s? Well, I want to go back to the role of scripture because I, I think it is. It's so interesting to see how the similarities, right, are so profound. Yeah, there was this process in the base Christian communities called conscientización that they got from Palo Friari, right? It was how do you look at your reality with new eyes, with hermeneutical suspicion. But then they did that process differently because then they used the word of God to shine light into the interpretation of reality. And so I I think of this, I had a lot of stories coming up, but I think of this one particular, because they did, they identified with all the biblical characters. And if you actually look at the stories of the biblical characters, so much closer to their experience, right? Not hard to identify with. But there was a group of Pueblo that was fighting for water rights and they were, the landlord was there and the city official and the landlord was like, how can you guys be doing this? It's impossible. These poor, illiterate people, just like that, right? These poor, like what? And he said, who's your leader? Who's the outside agitator who's coming in and organizing you? Mm. And they all looked at each other, like bewildered. And they turned back and they said, Jesus. And then he said, no, I mean, really? I mean, who's the outside agitator? And they looked at each other again with a little more confidence. And they said, Jesus. (laughs) Wow. You know, just this understanding of the presence of God and the this power of the scripture stories, their identification with the stories and God moving through the stories. So I was just, that was coming to me. And also the liturgy and song, I was thinking of Vamos Todos al Banquete, which was, let us all go to the banquet and it doesn't matter who you're all welcome at the table. You know, like you're welcome at the landlord's table, but you're welcome at the table oh. of the bank. So, you know, the music and the rituals of presente, where you would, when someone was killed, everybody would say presente, which say your name, which means, they're here, they're present, they're still alive in Christ. They're resurrected and they're here with us in the communion of saints. So all of these things that are so powerful. I think that some of what was going on with Chavez was going on at the same time, more or less. There was a movement in the United States, but as Robert Chattelmetto talks about in the Brown Church, all these movements were intersecting and have roots that go back even farther to Bartimeo de las Casas, you know, that there's mm-hmm. these, there's these very, very long stories of faith-rooted liberation in Latin America. It's not just something new, right? But the base Christian communities were, took it to a whole other level. And I mm-hmm. think, and but there's no question that there were, you know, the pilgrimage, um, Caesar's fast, right? That all of these profound symbols of our faith. One of the things that people talked about in the base Christian communities who saw them from the outside was they talked about the sense of joy and peace that was palpable. Some of what Brandon was talking about, it's like they could go to the well. They could go to the Holy Spirit well and they could find joy that the landlords and the, you know, tyrants couldn't destroy. Mm. And that joy, this joy, our joy is this gives us strength. I want to kind of switch over to begin to think about this in terms of how it helps us today. 
because I mean, what you just said about Cesar Chavez, and, and I have loved to study that movement. And I, you know, I took part in the fast for families on the National Mall with people who were right there who actually managed his fasts and helped him to do them. And and I learned it really is real faith. I mean, it's not just a tactic, right? Like it's actual faith in actual God, actual Jesus. Fasting and prayer, using, not fasting by itself. Fasting. Right. And yes. Right. And also not, not a hunger strike. Right. Like it's, they were very clear. This is not a hunger strike. This is a fast. We are calling on God to move the world. So there's a real connection, a connectedness to their faith. So it really is being drawn from the roots in a way that you don't really find in movements today. The movement today, generally speaking, and it's not everybody. I mean, obviously there are, I mean, there are actually real faith-rooted movements that are alive and well today. But oftentimes what you see is you see faith used, employed by movements in order to use the power of the symbol or use the blah, blah, blah but not necessarily working in with a holistic faith that I'm seeing in both of these, in both of these examples of the Hush Harbor and the BEC or BCC or whatever it is called, the base communities. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that they just didn't have anything else. Like they were not, they had their faith and that was it. So their faith was everything. And it and the powers were way too much for them. So they went in and against the powers with only their faith to hold them. You know what I mean? So it just, it took faith to do it. I just, I wonder if there's a way that these communities can speak to us now as we are facing the end of democracy, that literally the possible end of democracy. Can you reflect on these concepts, the concepts of leaderful and consciousness, spirituality, faithful, organizing, catch the fire, and how they can help us move through our current moment, this moment when democracy itself is under grave threat. I want to say that I weep sometimes that so many young people are so ahistorical. Hmm. Or if they know anything about history, they know all the bad stuff. But they don't know anything about movements that have happened before, that they stand on the shoulders of people that there are roots that could nurture them, like I said at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think it, and sometimes when people say to me, nothing's changed, I just weep because Mm. so much has changed in my lifetime, which Mm. doesn't take away from how much has to be changed. It actually Mm -hmm. gives you power to change what has to be changed now, Mm -hmm. to understand how the kingdom of God has been growing from a mustard seed into a tree. It's not the full tree yet, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely... Still, the spirit has moved and the spirit yeah. is still moving. Mm-hmm. And so it's how can we move with the spirit instead of trying to move? With and mm-hmm. I think that these stories give life. Stories can transmit life. Yeah. So I think these stories can transmit life mm-hmm. to people. I, I was in conversation with one of the women who's a part of the Ally Tour. For those of you who don't know, we do this thing called the Ally Tour kind of every election year now. And Alexia has actually participated in both of our engagements with this. And we're in the middle of it right now. And a woman wrote back on the thread and she said, are we any better off or something like that? There was, I can't remember the actual, like what was the actual context and everything. But the bottom line is I ended up writing back to her saying, the reason why I know that we are better off now, we are not the worst 
we're not at the worst that we could possibly be in terms of women, the power of women in the world. Though after the last ruling that we just had, I don't want to go too much on a tangent here, but I do think this, it does apply. The Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson did set back the rights of women. It literally undercut our rights and and it actually threatened a whole lot more people's rights, including people of color. It's part of the reason why democracy is on the brink is because of this recent ruling of the Supreme Court that actually undercuts the 14th Amendment and our current reading of it. And the 14th Amendment is all about citizenship. And citizenship is how we get protection of the law. So she said, are we really, I mean, are we the worst off we've ever been? And I said, actually, no. And here's why. We are not the worst off we've ever been because we have a common memory of a measure of freedom that we've never had before in American history. We have tasted freedom. Whereas in the past, women had not tasted that freedom. And for us, it's only been short-lived. You might actually say, really, only since Me Too, because even up to Me Too, like really 2000s, 2010, a woman could get raped and the man would go, you know, go with impunity because courts very rarely actually even prosecuted rape charges. But after Me Too, that's less the case. And so you can't say you have a full democracy if you're not going to if people are going to be able to do that with impunity, right? So, but now we have this big pushback and the pushback is making us feel like, oh no, things are worse off than they've ever been. But that's not true. Our ancestors, the ones who worshiped in the hush harbors, the ones who, who worshiped in the base ecclesial communities, they did it. Not only did they do it in context without democracy, at all under autocracies, but they had never even tasted democracy. They had not experienced a government that protected their rights before. So they, they were much worse off than we were. At least we know what freedom feels like. So we can hold on to that and move that forward. Mm-hmm. I want to share a story mm-hmm. from just really quickly from one of my, in the, from my first book, actually, but it's from the base Christian community, actually, in the Philippines, mm. that there were some women who were, I want to tell the long story, I'll tell the short version, but there were some women who were fighting to organize in a sugar plantation. They had planted banana trees as a sign of resistance because their children are malnourished and the thuds from the landowner tore up the banana trees. And the women were all wailing and I was wailing and I was really angry. I was very young. And I said to the leader of the women, I said, how can you do this? You can't win. And she said, no, I believe in the exodus. We're going to win. And so I said, so when are you going to win? And she said, soon. And I said, you're crazy. And she said, my daughter's daughter soon. It's not straightforward from zero to 60. It moves in ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. But overall, we get closer. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say, I, you know, I, I so appreciate this conversation about the the nature of what struggle meant for the ancestors and the, the how their faith was constituted. I do think it's important. I want to I want to have a, a loving pushback. On, <laughs> That's OK. And here, here's what I want to say, you know, the, the number of Lisa Sharon Harbors and Dr. Alexia Salvatierrez are rare in our local communities. And here's what I mean by that, that we can talk about elders and youth in a way that sometimes cannot necessarily match 
the reality of what is happening on the ground in local communities. And here's what I mean by that, because in my experience of organizing in Black working class communities in Eastern North Carolina, many of the Black churches that we have here are very much fairly, is inertia the right word? They speak to who they speak to, which is pretty much the people who are looking to hear from them. But they don't have the same kind of footprint or authority or influence across the span of Black communities the way they once did. And I, we can talk about why that's the case. I'm just naming the reality. A big part of what is at stake in Black communities, for example, especially working class ones, is that so many, I mean, I live in a Black working class community in eastern, the eastern part of Greensboro, North Carolina. Most of the churches that are here that are in the community are dying. They're small. They're tiny. They have maybe 10 members. I'll talk to a, a new pastor of a Baptist church in the community, he's got maybe 10 members in his church, right? The churches that the black churches that exist in our community are usually sort of large mega churches that most of their members don't live in the community that surround them. So the reason why I wanna lift that up is because the elders that I speak to in this community are very isolated. They aren't the, they aren't the Lisa Sharon Harpers and Dr. Alexia Sabatier that are inspiring and encouraging young people. They actually have as much hopelessness and cynicism as what we might say exists amongst the young people. I can tell you so many stories of elders in my community in the eight, 70s, 80s, and 90s when you ask them, why is our community struggling with all the issues we face? And what they turn to so often is against the very community that they live in, right? So I, I, I bring that up to say that I think that one of the things that we have to be open to, and the Hush Harbor reminds us of this, is that what constitutes faith during the civil rights movement or other kinds of times may not look like what it, it is now. And so, you know, I want to lift up this quote from this, this brother now for it. He says, what if, what if, and this is on page 203 in the book, he says, what if in our search for the church, we miss the spirit e erupting beyond its walls? And then he goes on to say, for so many of the spirit underserved, these activities, activities like street memorials, protests, teaching, strategy sessions, a lot of what I just shared about barbershops, front porches, you know, places where working class people gather together to play sports together, et cetera, that these are makeshift spiritual practices rooted in a love of justice and a reverence for the sanctity of black life. And I think it's important to lift up because it may not signal or look like what we might call church or give the language or symbolism that we expect from Christians. But when you look deeper, these are often the people who are the organic leaders, who are the people who are stepping up in our local communities to actually embody the kind of hope that demonstrates a different way for communities to live and to, and to exist in times like these where we experience such oppression, such fascism, frankly, even on a local level. And, and I just think that's important to lift up because how else do people, how else can people go about experiencing the kinds of victories that I've seen, at least in my community, to win on so many different things if they don't have some level of spirituality and resilience that again, for me, may make me uncomfortable as an ordained clergy person. It may not look exactly like what I would what I would do, but the people who do have the language that I have, which are often the elders in my community, are are not the ones who 
demonstrate the kind of hope that something different is possible in communities like ours. You know what strikes me, just what strikes me about, first of all, that it really saddens me, like, and it is true. And I think that it says a lot about a few things. The first thing that comes to mind is for the elders, for folks who are in their 70s and above, right? Like maybe you could even say 65 and above, boomers and above. They are the generation that got us the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but they're also the generation that experienced the tremendous trauma of the backlash against it, which was the assassination of Dr. King. That's right. And what that did to them. Mm. Oh my God, can you imagine going for a decade straight of push, push, having it culminate in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act after bleeding, after marching together and living together and traveling on buses together. I mean, this is that generation. And then your leader is assassinated. And literally the movement scatters at that point. And That's it's right. not like they didn't try, like they really did. I mean, Stokely Carmichael took over and, but then SNCC was, you know, they came after SNCC here in Philadelphia and discredited them through a bunch of lies and fake news and all of that. And so people scattered and they went their own way. I think there's a bunch of disillusionment that That's came right. with that. And it seems to me like there's, look, we're at an inflection point. We are past the moment in 2015 when we were talking about those young people, they don't know how to do church. They shouldn't be out there marching, saying Black Lives Matter. They need to be singing, we shall overcome. Like (laughs) That was the moment in 2015. We're past that. I think we need to get to this place where the young people who are actually experiencing the hush harbors in the Black Lives, they need to, and I'm sure actually there have been these moments, but this needs to happen on a grand scale where they need to invite in the elders. The same needs to be true and must be true within the communities that experience the base ecclesial communities and also the other faith-rooted movements that sprung out of the Latino experience in America and throughout South and Central America and in the Philippines. I want to close us with this thought. It really, it's an exercise in imagination and it's perfect for what we were just talking about. I want you to imagine the ancestors who developed the hush harbors, right? The ones who were the first to say, let's go out to the clearing. I know a place in a tree where we can worship. I'm the first ones to say, let's gather in secret under Imelda Marcos or under the dictatorship here in El Salvador or in, in Guatemala. And that the ones who had, were the first to develop the base ecclesial communities. I want you to imagine those ancestors in those fascist slaveocracies and autocratic South America. And I want you to imagine that they turn to the current day movements. They turn to us and they speak. What do they say? You know, I was on the phone about three weeks ago with some young Filipinos who had gotten in touch with me. They heard about me being around here. And they wanted to hear the stories. They're restarting the movement. There's the grandson of Marcos's in power and they're restarting the movement in some ways. It's never gone away, but they're revitalizing it. 
and they wanted to hear the stories. And so I was telling them, and then at a certain point, I just felt the Lord speaking to me. And I said to them, I think that I need to bless you in the name of your ancestors, that I, I know people who were disappeared, and I know that they're part of the, the, the cloud of witnesses, and I just feel they want me to bless you in their name. And so I did, and they were crying. But I was just saying to them, you know, don't give up. You're not alone. Thank you. It wasn't complicated. But I just was remembering the people that I knew her disappeared or shot. And I just knew that they were in the communion of saints and that they wanted me to see. Yeah. Wow. That's... Yeah, I think what I would what I would say is I'm thinking about Miss um, Linda Liggins, who is in her 80s. She lives alone in my neighborhood. I caught her something different in the book, <laughs> but I she doesn't know that I, I wrote about it the book. But I caught her something different, and um, you know, she's an example of of one of the elders who early on in my organizing here in, in Greensboro, trying to build a you know a new what we call a new black working class leftist majority in this city. I talked with her and I asked her about what she wanted to see change in the community. She's one of the first people that lived in this neighborhood. And she was telling me many things that, you know, even newcomers experience in this neighborhood. You know, it's the violence, it's the trash, it's the speeding, you know, it's the economic disempower, all the things, right? And I said, uh, Miss, well, Miss Linda, like, you know, what is it going to take to make something happen, to make something change? And uh, she's like, I don't know. You know, at first, she, at first, it was a kind of a sense of hopelessness around, you know, folks got to do better. And I don't know if anything is going to change. These people, don't, you know, right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm just, you know, like, is anybody going to give it to us? You know, like, you know, what's what is it going to take? You know, what are you going to do? And she said, uh, I guess it's going to take an army of neighbors is what she said. An army of neighbors. And it stuck with me. She's one of. And I haven't heard from her since she, you know, she was a bit of a fence sitter and kind of like what I was sharing before, like just, you know, her own sense of disillusionment or hopelessness, whatever you want to call it, has kept her isolated in this community and afraid, right? When we actually need her. And a year later, we have been in this campaign trying to get the city to clean up dangerous trash and debris in the community that the, the city inconsistently picks up in our, in our, our part of town. And we won recently. And what I was sending out a text. Yeah, I, I was sending out a text to her to, to like a universe of people, mass text and to come to this event. And I missed a text from Miss Linda Liggins. She texts back, you know, she's not the most tech savvy. Right. And so <laughs> after the event, she responded to it. And in preparation for another text that I was sending out the next week, I happened to notice it. It was an unread message. And I went, I'm like, who could have sent something after the event? It was Miss Linda Ligon. I haven't heard from her in a year, right? And she said in the text, you all cleaned up trash in front of me and my neighbor's yard. And I want to thank you. And I was like, I, I just immediately got moved because I haven't heard from her, right? And I text back and I said, Miss Linda, 
you don't know how much your words meant to me at that. When I canvassed her door, I was with my wife and my two sons. And the reason why she let us in, she said, the only reason why she, she said, the only reason why I let you, I don't let people and I'm afraid. She said, the only reason why I let you in is because you had kids with you. And I didn't want you to be out here on my street. I didn't think y'all knew any better. Thought y'all was new around here. I said, you moved, you moved me and my wife and my, my, me and my wife so deeply when you said that we needed an army of neighbors that we have used that slogan so much to empower and inspire people. And I said, Miss Linda, we need you. I know you can't do everything that's going on in the movement, but we do need your witness, just your encouragement, your inspiration. And I asked her, I said, could you join us tomorrow? We have a meeting tomorrow, bass waiting tomorrow. Could you join us tomorrow? And she said, Lord willing, I'm going to be there because I've been praying for y'all. And she said, she said, I may not be there, but I've been praying for y'all. And I said, it would mean a whole lot to me if I could see you tomorrow. So we'll see if Miss Linda Lick shows up. If she doesn't, just knowing that she's been praying and for her to know that the, 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 the loop has been closed for me around, I may not have seen you, but your words meant something to me and they inspired me is sufficient. And so that's what I think. That's the way I think the ancestors are speaking to the possibility of, of transformation today. The old people dream dreams and the young people see visions. <laughs> the conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. And in the meantime, for those who are one of our Patreon patrons, we have a special treat for you after this episode.